Good morning. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you are turning there, if you are one of our guests, as always, we are glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. We hope you will stick around at our services and let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. And there is a potluck. Lunch is on us, uh, if you are so inclined. 1 Peter 5, let's read verses 5 through 11. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we pray that through your word, you would help us to see how we are to conduct ourselves during our brief time here on earth, that we would understand the transient nature of the sufferings that we endure, and that we would ever look to you in your eternal glory, because to you really does belong the dominion forever and ever. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. After Abraham Lincoln defeated Stephen A. Douglas for the presidency, the two were together on the east portico of the Capitol for Lincoln's inauguration. And as Lincoln was being introduced by Senator Edward E. Baker of Oregon, Lincoln had his, the, the manuscript of his speech. He had a cane, and he had, of course, his signature tall silk hat. And as he was making ready for the speech, he looked for a place to put his hat. And it was Douglas who quickly stepped forward, and he took the hat and returned to his seat. He was asked about this later, and he told the cousin of Mrs. Lincoln, he said, if I can't be president, I can at least hold his hat. And we applaud that kind of magnanimity. We applaud that kind of humility, such as it is. And indeed, we desire ourselves to be humble, knowing that, well, as we read, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We want God's grace. That was a good place to say amen. We want God's grace. That's right, we do. We need His grace. And God, He gives grace to His faithful ones. 
How does God's grace manifest in the life of a Christian? How does it manifest even in your life? That's what I want us to explore this morning in our text here in 1 Peter chapter 5, especially verses 6 through 11. God's grace is evident in a number of ways. It evidences itself in a number of ways in the life of the Christian. And the first is seen in verses 6 through 9, where we see that God's grace is given to those who humbly cast their cares upon God. Verse 6 begins, humble yourselves. That's how my English standard reads. That's okay. The force of what Peter is saying here, though, what he writes ought to be translated, and perhaps is better translated, be humbled. It's what's called a, a passive voice verb. Be humbled. That, that we are being acted upon by an outside agent. In this case, it's God who humbles us. We know this from the rest of the verse, which says that we are to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. That it is God who humbles us. Humble was a landscaping term. It, it had to do with making a certain piece of land level. And so it came to mean that we are to, to think rightly of ourselves. Uh, that in relation to God, we recognize who we are. We, we ourselves are leveled out, as it were. Not to think too lowly of ourselves, that would be a bad thing, but also not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think rightly about ourselves. And so here's Peter calling these Christians to be humbled by the power and will of God. That's the mighty hand of God. To recognize our position before God. To live in accordance with a proper understanding of who we are in relation to who God is, and to submit to His will. We are humbled by, again, the mighty hand of God. Be humbled, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This was a common Old Testament expression that expresses God's power. It expresses His authority, the hand being the thing that does the action. And in this case, the, the, the hand here, God, He doesn't have a literal body. He is spirit, but the hand is, uh, well, the big term for it is an anthropomorphism. It's a, it's a human quality, human characteristic being applied to God, right? But we are humbled by or under the mighty hand of God. Peter has already demonstrated throughout this epistle, he is a master of the Old Testament. If Paul writes like a, a man who has the Greek Old Testament running through his blood, well, Peter is right there with him, and he quotes and he alludes to and cites a number of different Old Testament texts. And here is an idea from the Old Testament that Peter grabs hold of, and he is utilizing it, inviting these Christians, as it were, to recognize God's sovereignty and to recognize God's ability to deliver Christians from every enemy and every foe, especially that foe that's mentioned there in verse 8, the adversary, the enemy, the devil, who's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And so when we are armed with the proper perspective of who God is, then we can think rightly about who God is uh, and who we are in relation to Him. Now, uh, verse, the rest of verse 6 explains the purpose for this, so that, that's a purpose statement, so that at the proper time, 
he may exalt you. You see, when you properly view yourself and you have a right understanding of who you are in relation to God, well, God will give you a higher status here. He will exalt you. He will raise you to a position of dignity, a position of honor. We know that Christians in the first century and for the first few centuries after that, they were not looked upon highly by the surrounding culture, the surrounding society, tended to look down on Christians. They were not held in any esteem or any honor. They were viewed as undignified. They were spoken evil against. Peter's talked about that as well in this epistle back in chapter 2. And so these Christians, and sometimes like us, they had to wait. They had to wait on God that in the proper time, in due time, God would be the one who exalted them. So the whole world looked down upon them. No, to, to God, they were precious in His sight, and He would exalt them, those who humble themselves. We're not to miss the connection here between the fact that God is the one who gives grace to the humble, but also that He is the God of all grace. And right in the midst of this is the grace of exaltation. And whether it's in this life or in the life to come, rest assured, my brothers and sisters, God will exalt those who are humbled by Him. Part of this is related to verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. We see, well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Christians back then, they had, they had problems. They had anxieties. They had worries. They had cares. And so also do we have anxieties and worries and stresses and concerns and all the like. But by casting all of our anxieties on Him, all of our cares, all of our worries, all that, we are recognizing, number one, we don't have the power to handle these things ourselves. But at the, at the, at the same time, on the, on the other hand, we recognize we have a God who is big enough who is powerful enough to handle all of our anxieties, all of our cares, all of our worries. And He invites us to, to cast these, to throw these things, hurl them to heaven. Because He really does have the power to change and affect the circumstances and situations that cause those anxieties and those worries. We are powerless, we are weak, we are in need of divine help, but there is one who is big enough who has the power to truly help, and it's God. It is God, according to the mighty hand that He wields in this world. He is capable of handling all of our anxieties, all of our worries. It's interesting, the word here for casting all your anxieties. It could be translated as hurl. It's the same word that's used in the Gospels when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Remember this scene? And the people, they were... Uh, throwing, they, they first threw a cloak over a colt. They, they hurled that cloak over the donkey and its colt so that Jesus could ride into Jerusalem. And the idea here is, in a similar way, we, we hurl our cloak of cares upon God. We cast our entire wardrobe of worry upon God. 
all of our cloak of cares, He invites us, put it on me. And He is big enough to handle all of our anxiety. All. Don't miss that. Not, you know, most of them, some of them, a good portion of all of them. We cast all of our anxieties on Him. And the reason that we do this is because He cares for you. He cares for you. My brothers, my sisters. The reason that we cast all of our anxieties on Him is because we're always on His mind. He's always mindful of us. He thinks about us, and He acts, and re- He responds appropriately. You, uh, you parents in the audience, you can probably relate to this. I, I think about this as, as a father to my children. It's manifested in different ways as they continue to grow. When they were small little babies, and we were just beginning to introduce solid foods to them, you know, Kim and I, we've been married for years now, and, and, and I'll tell you, I've never thought, I wonder if she can have peanut butter, right? Or, man, I, should she be talking by now? But those were cares, those were things that I worried about with my kids, right? Can they have peanut butter? Can you, or is he going to have some kind of reaction? Mm, he's... He's getting to be several months old. Should he be talking by now? Right? But that's the kind of care that God has for us, and He always has it for us. He's always mindful and and understanding of who we are, that we do have these anxieties and these worries and these cares. But He invites us to cast all of those anxieties upon Him. And as we Understand who He is, that is what enables us to cast our cares upon Him. When we recognize, man, He is is a big God, a sovereign God, and He truly has the power and ability to handle these things. When we acknowledge our own humility and our own inability to handle these things, well, that's when we cast our cares upon Him, and in due time, we will be exalted. In verse 8, we have a, another invitation here where Peter says, Be sober-minded. It is a call to control your thought processes. You don't want to have your mind just running off uncontrollably because that kind of, of thinking puts you in danger of irrational thoughts. This is a call to self-restraint. Peter is calling his brothers and sisters, even us today, to be cool, calm, collected, but also to be pensive, to be thoughtful, mindful. I've said before, I'll continue to say, Christians ought to be the most thoughtful people on the planet. We need to be serious thinkers about God, about life, about the suffering that we endure. We need to be sober-minded about our enemy, a very powerful spiritual foe that we face, the devil. Yeah, be sober-minded, and also be watchful. Wake up. This was a favorite expression of Jesus in the Gospels when He was describing the coming destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Mark chapter 13, verse 35, also verse 37. He would say, wake up, be watchful. It's also what is found on our Lord's lips in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when His disciples 
he is inviting them to pray, he would say, wake up. And in some cases, he came back and found them asleep and had to wake them up. Wake up. Christians need to be awake. We need to be alert. Otherwise, we'll fall into temptation. We'll fall into sin. We don't want to do that. It's kind of like driving a car. You fall asleep at the wheel, that's disaster waiting to happen, right? Stay awake. Stay alert. Because you do have this powerful adversary, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour And so, verse 9, resist him. If you're to be sober-minded and and to be awake, you also need to be steadfast. To resist him, that's to to be hostile toward him. Uh, To to, uh, even oppose the adversary. It was a court of law term. It's similar in construction also to what James says over in James chapter 4 and verse 7. James 4 and verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so we we must stand against, we must be steadfast against the wiles of the devil. We don't want him to catch us unaware, and indeed we are mindful of his schemes and methods. And so Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. Don't be moved. It's emphatic, by the way. Don't be moved. Don't flinch in the face of opposition, but rather be rock-like. Stand your ground. And also recognize that the same kinds of sufferings that you are experiencing are also being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The same brotherhood that back in chapter 2, Peter had called these Christians to love. Love the brotherhood, he says there in 2, verse 17. Well, now... We see the universal scope of the Lord's body, this brotherhood that is throughout the world. Well, they're also experiencing the same kind of affliction. And don't get it twisted. It may be coming from the Roman government and the Roman officials, but our battle is not against flesh and blood. The one who's behind the scene, the puppet master who's pulling the strings of these bad guys is the real bad guy, the the enemy, the devil. That's who our war is against. And so the sufferings are from the evil one. He hates the church. He hates Christians because ultimately he hates God. And and no doubt these sufferings, they were fiery, they were intense. Peter's talked about the the fiery persecution back in chapter 4. And so given all of this, what should these submissive, sober-minded, watchful, awake, and... uh, steadfast Christians, what should they do? Well, they need to look for God's grace in the midst of that suffering. And so verses 10 and 11, what Peter will do is he's going to contrast the evanescent nature of suffering in contrast to the eternal nature of God. And what we mean by evanescent there is it's transient. It's short-lived. It doesn't last forever. He says in verse 10, after you have suffered... A little while. He says the suffering is going to last for a little while. Which means, or at least implies, that suffering, it'll go away. Now, it'll never go away forever. That's the, the nature of suffering is, is it'll last for a short while and then it'll uh, ebb away. But then it may show up again in the future. It never 
truly ends. And indeed, on this side of eternity, suffering is never completely finished. That's why we read in the Gospels that Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, the devil left for another opportune time, for another season of temptation. But the nature of this suffering, it's, it's for a little while. And while the trial lasts, and until this trial is over, we need to look to the God of grace. Because He is the one who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Notice the eternal nature here of God. His glory is eternal, which means He Himself is eternal. And then also, verse 11, to Him be the dominion forever and ever. His dominion is everlasting because He is the everlasting God. His glory and His dominion are rooted in His nature as the eternal, everlasting God. And I love that Peter calls Him the God of all grace. Every kind of grace, every needed grace and every means of grace comes from the God of all grace. He supplies every bit of it. That's the nature of grace. And it is the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. God is the one who called you. The you here, by the way, are these Christians in Asia Minor. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter there calls them these elect exiles in Asia Minor. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But then he goes on in verse 2 and he says that they are elect exiles in the place where they are elect exiles because of, according to, verse 2, the foreknowledge of God the Father. And they are elect exiles in sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And they are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. You see, they are elect exiles foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and washed in the blood of Christ and for obedience to Christ. These are the ones that have been called by God. They've heard the gospel and they have been saved from their sins and called to His glory. And look, God is still up to that in our world. He's still doing that. I appreciated what Gary mentioned. The leadership here is involved in a year-long process of renewal and reimagining what it looks like for the church in California, in the Central Valley. And imagining new ways for the gospel to break out right where we are, in our backyard, in our neighborhoods. Because God still is graciously calling sinners. He called us, didn't He? He called us sinners to His eternal glory. And He continues to call sinners to His eternal glory. Indeed, that is the primary expression of His grace, is in saving sinners. And again, the, the eternal nature of God's glory stands in sharp contrast with the transient suffering that we experience in this world. <clears throat> and so even in the midst of suffering, God gives more grace. Well, Peter, can you be a bit more specific about what, how does this grace manifest itself? He gives four terms here briefly. He says that God restores the suffering. The God of all grace will Himself restore you. He restores those who are suffering, in other words. The suffering Christian. 
And the idea here of restoration is, well, he, he fixes it. He fixes you who are suffering. It's the same word that's used when the apostles, after a night of fishing, are mending their nets. They're, they're fixing them, getting them ready. So they go fishing the next night. After the night of fishing the nets, they've been strained. They're frayed. They're in need of repair. And in a similar way, after a night of suffering, night of suffering, after a season of suffering, we are strained. We're frayed. We're in need of mending. And it's God Himself who extends His mighty hands to restore us, to fix us, to mend us, to repair us once the night is over. But God also confirms you, confirms the suffering Christian. He makes it so that you're no longer weak. It's a, a similar word, or excuse me, the same word that's used when Jesus, on the night of His betrayal, says to Peter, He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I pray for you. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen, confirm your brothers. That's the same word that's used here. Yes, Peter would, his faith would fail. And he would deny the Lord. But he would be restored. He would come back and he was then to strengthen or confirm his brothers. And I'm sure that's in the back of Peter's mind as he's writing this. Ah, yeah, I know about this. The God of all grace will confirm you as well. He's done it to me. He'll do it to you as well. And then the God of all grace will strengthen you. He'll strengthen the suffering Christian. And this is the only time that this word is used here in the New Testament. And it means, well, to strengthen. <laughs> he will strengthen you. God will give you new strength. You know, here we are at the beginning of the, of the year, and a lot of folks make New Year's resolution to go to the gym, to get fit, right? We're going we're gonna to get new bodily strength. But to do that, you've got to hit the gym. You've got to feel the burn, right? You've got to lift the weights. You've got to work out. And those muscles, are going to fill with lactic acid, and it's going to break down those muscles. They're going to hurt, and they're going to ache. But you're stronger after. The, the muscle fibers. They, they heal and they're stronger after. In a similar way, once you've experienced, you've felt the burn of persecution and suffering, well, God is the one who will strengthen you. and You'll be stronger for it because God will reinvigorate you. And finally, the God of all grace will establish you. He establishes the suffering Christian. You see, this is a builder's term. And it was used to describe when a, a foundation was laid. It was a firm foundation that was laid. Well, similarly, God, he, he grounds us. He lays a firm foundation in our life. And it occurs through the means of suffering. And we come to be firm. We come to be solid but that only comes following those tumultuous times that suffering brings. But it is through that that God will establish you. So that you are firm in the faith following that. And God is the one who has dominion over all of this. 
He has authority over all of it. God, He does. He gives grace to the humble. God, His grace is given to those who are faithful to Him, those whom He has called, those elect exiles who are right where they are because of the foreknowledge of God and the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the uh, washing influence of the blood of Christ and obedience for Him. The God of all grace, He lavishes upon us that unmerited favor that we don't deserve. And He does that by restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us. And so we, we are humbled. We see just how big God is. And so we are submissive to Him. We submit ourselves to Him. We are sober-minded. We are watchful. And we are steadfast against the powerful foe that we have. Yes, God, He does. He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Let's commit this to prayer. Indeed, Father, we pray that You would strengthen us for the road ahead. Whether it be calm waters or stormy seas, we pray that we would ever look to You. Your mighty hand, Your dominion that lasts forever and ever. And having recognized who You are, Father, that we would recognize who we are, that we would be humbled by that, and that we would walk humbly before You. We need Your grace, Father. Continue to pour out Your grace upon us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.